Welcome to Manna for Breakfast, the daily Bible reading devotional which chronologically takes you through the Word of God from Genesis to Revelation in one year. Grab a cup of coffee and your Bible and join us as we journey together through God's Word. Good morning and welcome to Manna for Breakfast. We got all kinds of fun stuff going on here. We are looking at Numbers 23 through 25 this morning. And as always, I like to get us get, a, get our minds going with a, a couple of good dad jokes. Let's see what we've got for this morning. What kind of doctor is Dr. Pepper? The physician. That's bad. Why didn't the melons get married? Because they can't elope. Yeah. Okay. Oh, here's a good one for my son here. It says, my son got angry when I told him, sky is the limit for you. He wants to be an astronaut. Oh, sky's the limit. He can't, he can't go up into space. I get it. I get it. I'm a little slow on some of these. I got to do some more until I get it myself. What do you get when you pour root beer into a square glass? Just plain beer. <laughs> I like that one. Just plain beer, no root, right? Okay, for you mathematicians. Um, let's see what happened on this day in history real quick. Mm, let me see. The birth control ban repealed March 22nd on this day, 1972. First American woman to obtain a driver's license, March 22nd, 1900. Annie Rensford French Bush. Believe me, the first woman to receive a driver's license. She was granted a steam engine license, locom uh, locomobile class, in the city of Washington, D.C., which allowed her to operate a four-wheeled vehicle powered by, a st by steam or gas. And steam engines were not easy to deal with, for sure. All right. Well, that's enough for that. Let's go ahead and move over into the reading today as we are looking into Numbers chapter 23. Father God, guide us and direct us. Thank you for this time. Thank you for God, allowing us to continue every morning feeding upon your word. May you just uh, guide us and help us see these things. So many of us know the stories, but we don't know how to connect the dots. We don't understand the implications sometimes why it was even written for our benefit. So just help us and understand these things in Jesus' name. Numbers 23. Then Balaam said to Balak, build seven altars for me here and prepare seven bulls and seven rams for me here. Balak did just as Balaam had spoken, and Balak and Balaam offered up a bull and a ram on each altar. Then Balaam said to Balak, Stand before your burnt offering, and I will go. Perhaps the Lord will come to meet me, and whatever he shows me, I will tell you. So he went to a bare hill. Now God met Balaam, and he said to him, I have set up the seven altars and have offered up a bull and a ram on each altar. Then the Lord put a word in Balaam's mouth, and he said, Return to Balak, and you shall thus speak. And he returned to him, and behold, he was standing beside the burnt offering, he and all the leaders of Moab. And he took up his discourse and said, From Aram, Balak has brought me, Moab, king of the mountains of the east. Come curse Jacob for me, and come denounce Israel. How shall I curse whom God has not cursed? And how can I denounce 
whom the Lord has not denounced. As I see him from the top of the rocks, and I look at him from the hills, behold a people who dwells apart and will not be reckoned among the nations. Who can count the dust of Jacob or number the fourth part of Israel? Let me die the death of the upright and let my end be like his. Then Balak said to Balaam, What have you done to me? I took you to curse my enemies, and behold, you have actually blessed them. He replied, Must I not be careful to speak what the Lord puts in my mouth? Then Balak said to him, Please come with me to another place from where you may see them, although you will only see the extreme end of them and will not see all of them, and curse them from me from there. And he took him to a field of Zophim, the top of Pisgah, and built seven altars, and offered a bull and a ram on each altar. And he said to Balak, Stand here beside your burnt offering, while I myself meet with the Lord over there. And then the Lord met Balaam, and put a word in his mouth, and said, Return to Balak, and thus you shall speak. And he came to him, and behold, he was standing beside his burnt offering, and the leaders of Moab with him. And Balak said to him, What has the Lord spoken? And he took up his discourse, and said, Arise, O Balak, and hear, Give ear to me, O son of Zephor. God is not a man that he should lie, nor the son of man that he should repent. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not make it good? Behold, I have received a command to bless. When he is blessed, then I cannot revoke it. He has not observed misfortune in Jacob, nor has he seen trouble in Israel. The Lord his God is with him, and the shout of a king is among them. God brings them out of Egypt. He is for them like the horns of a wild ox. For there is no omen against Jacob, nor is there any division against Israel. At the proper time, it shall be said to Jacob and to Israel what God has done. Behold, a people rises like a lioness, and as a lion it lifts itself, and it will not lie down until it devours the prey, and drinks the blood of the slain. Then Balak said to Balaam, Do not curse them at all, nor bless them at all. But Balaam replied to Balak, Did I not tell you, whatever the Lord speaks, I must do? Then Balak said to Balaam, Please come, I will take you to another place. Perhaps it will be agreeable with God that you curse them for me from there. So Balak took Balaam to the top of Peor, which overlooks the wasteland. Balaam said to Balak, Build seven altars for me here, and prepare seven bulls and seven rams for me here. Balak did just as Balaam had said, and he offered up a bull and a ram on each altar. Chapter 24. When Balaam saw that it pleased the Lord to bless Israel, he did not go as at other times to seek omens, but he set his face towards the wilderness. And Balaam lifted up his eyes and saw Israel camping tribe by tribe, and the Spirit of God came upon him, and he took up his discourse and said, The oracle of Balaam, the son of Beor, and the oracle of the man whose eye is open, the oracle of him who hears the words of God and sees the vision of the Almighty, falling down, yet having his eyes uncovered. How fair are your tents, O Jacob, your dwellings, O Israel, like valleys that stretch out like gardens beside the river, like aloes planted by the Lord, like cedars beside the waters. Waters will flow from his buckets, and his seed will be by many waters, and his 
king shall be higher than Agag, and his kingdom shall be exalted. God brings him out of Egypt. He is for him like the horns of a wild ox. He will devour the nations who are his adversaries. He will crush their bones in pieces and shatter them with his arrows. He crouches, he lies down as a lion. And as a lion, who dares rouse him? Blessed is everyone who blesses you, and curses is everyone who curses you. Then Balak's anger burned against Balaam, and he struck his hands together, and Balak said to Balaam, I called you to curse my enemies, and behold, you have persisted in blessing them these three times. Therefore, flee to your place now. I said I would honor you greatly, and behold, the Lord has held you back from honor. Balaam said to Balak, Did I not tell your messengers whom you had sent to me, saying, Though Balak were to give me his house full of silver and gold, I could not do anything contrary to the command of the Lord, either good or bad, of my own accord? What the Lord speaks, I will speak. Now behold, I am going to my people. Come, and I will advise you what this people will do to you in the days to come. He took up his discourse and said, The oracle of Balaam, the son of Beor, and an oracle of the man whose eye is opened, the oracle of him who hears the words of the Lord and knows the knowledge of the Most High, who sees the vision of the Almighty, falling down yet having his eyes uncovered. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come forth from Jacob. A scepter shall rise from Israel and shall crush through the forehead of Moab and tear down all the sons of Sheth. Edom shall be a possession. Seir, its enemies, also will be a possession. While Israel performs valiantly, one of Jacob shall have dominion and will destroy the remnant of the city. And he looked at Amalek and took up his discourse and said, Amalek was the first of the nations, but his end shall be destruction. And he looked at Kinnate, and he took up his discourse and said, Your dwelling place is enduring, and your nest is set on a cliff. Nevertheless, Cain will be consumed. How long will Ashur keep you captive? Then he took up his discourse and said, Alas, who can live except God has ordained it? But ships shall come from the coast of Kittim, and they shall afflict Ashur and will afflict Eber. So they will come to destruction. And Balaam arose and departed, returning to his place. And Balak also went his way. While Israel remained at Shittim, the people began to play the harlot with the daughters of Moab. They invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel joined themselves to Baal of Peor, and, and the Lord was angry at Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, Take all the leaders of the people and execute them in broad daylight before the Lord, so the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. So Moses said to the judges of Israel, Each of you slay his men who have joined themselves to Baal of Peor. Then behold, one of the sons of Israel came and brought to his relatives a Midianite woman in the sight of Moses and in the sight of all the congregation of the sons of Israel while they were weeping at the doorway of the tent of meeting. While Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, saw it, he arose from the midst of the congregation, took his spear in his hand, and he went after the man of Israel into the tent and pierced both of them through, and 
the man of Israel and the woman through the body, so the plague of the sons of Israel was checked. Those who died by the plague were 24,000. Verse 10, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, has turned away my wrath from the sons of Israel, and that he was jealous for my jealousy among them, so that I did not destroy the sons of Israel in my jealousy. Therefore, say, Behold, I give him my covenant of peace, and it shall be for him and his descendants after him a covenant of perpetual priesthood, because he was jealous for his God and made atonement for the sons of Israel. Now, the name of the slain man of Israel who was slain with the Midianite woman was Zimri, the son of Salu, the leader of the father's household among the Simeonites. The name of the Midianite woman who was slain was Kosbi, the daughter of Sur, who was head of the people of a father's household in Midian. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Be hostile to the Midianites and strike them, for they have been hostile to you with their tricks, with which they have deceived you in the affair of Peor and in the affair of Kosbi, the daughter of the leader of Midian, their sister, who was slain on the day of the plague because of Peor. Well, we've got a couple of things to go through, at least, maybe more, on what was happening during this time. You have Balaam and Balak. Balaam is an interesting guy, because on the one hand, he seems to be a true prophet of God. On the other hand, he seems to be completely um, away from Jehovah and have not a clear knowledge of who this people really is really are. He was not in Egypt with them. He lives in a different country. There, He calls Yahweh his God, but he does not seem to be, or at least indicated a Hebrew. Um, it's because he's not one of part of the 12 tribes, or he'd be with them. But yet, God speaks to him. How, though? You see, they're going up on mountaintops, and he's going up to different mountaintops with Balak and offering these seven rams and uh, seven animals for sacrifice. But remember, by this time, God has established that only at the tabernacle and the altar was sacrifice to be made. That was the only place to come before God. Anything other than the altar was not, was not sanctioned and was, in fact, uh, contrary to God's will. And it was a serious offense, actually. But God is allowing this so he can prove his point. He's allowing this so that he can use this tool, this person, to show to the world and to the Canaanites who these people are. What's interesting is they go on one mountain, offer sacrifice, and he blesses Israel. Goes to another mountain, tries to offer sacrifice, blesses Israel. And he's going to these different mountains. Why? Why does Balak ins- uh, insist, let's go try a different mountain? Because they believed in the locality of their gods. And they believed that certain gods, Baal, was manifested the most or had a power on mountaintops. They believed that ancient gods were, were dwelling on mountaintops. So if you could go to the right mountaintop where that god was dwelling and had a power and a presence, then maybe sacrifice there, then you could get help. So he, he's sacrificing to who? I mean, to in Balaam's mind, he's sacrificing to Yahweh, but Balak wants him to sacrifice on the mountain of these of Baal, Baal, Peor, 
funny in Spanish, peor means worse. <laughs> the worst kind of God you could try and um, worship. And and each time it doesn't work. It changes and he ends up blessing Israel. Meaning God is at war. Israel is always at war on two fronts. The spiritual and the physical. So he goes up to do... They want physical battle. Balak wants to win them over. But even Balak knows they can't win against them physically. So he's trying to invoke the spiritual side of it. And God is showing them that they they can't win over him in the spiritual. Every time they go and try and invoke power from one of their gods, he overrides it and he blesses Israel. And we have many people feel... The most amazing prophecy of the coming of Jesus here, chapter 23, I think, or 4. But the, this whole prophecy about uh, um, this Jesus coming, he's, he sees it. He sees the prophecy of the coming of the Messiah, and he speaks about it. In the midst of trying to curse Israel, God says not only... Can you not curse Israel and win over Israel? But I'm going to do a work in this land. In this land I'm bringing them into to actually bring in the Messiah and transform the world. So pretty phenomenal. Uh, But what happens in there in chapter 25? We don't, we'll have to read on to get the backstory. We don't see it here. But Balaam finally agrees with Balak that there's no way that he can get God to curse them. God will not curse them. Yahweh is their God. There's no way he can get him to curse them. So he says the only thing you can do is get them to sin against Yahweh. So he uses his intellect, his knowledge of their covenant relationship with God. How he knew that, I don't know. But he knew that if they would fall into immorality sexually, that that would be adultery against their God, and God would judge them. And so chapter 25 is what you're seeing there. He tells Balak that Balak gets the Midianite women to go in and seduce the men. And remember, every time in the Canaanite religion, when they took the people to go lie with them, it even specifies here, they would bring them in before their God. It was a, they were... um, priestesses they were uh they were what would you call them cultic prostitutes so they would take them in and feast before their god and have their sexual union with them as an act of worship to their false gods to to baal so it was again sinning on two levels it was the spiritual and this and the physical the physical is what we noticed but it was the spiritual they were committing adultery against Yahweh. This is why then the priest goes in and he is the one that kills this one couple that stops the plague because she was bringing, tearing him away from his God, bringing him into the the worship and the denial of, of Yahweh God while God has been victorious through them through the entire desert. So this is a, it's it's like the enemy taking them captive and and, and changing them and get winning them over to their side is kind of what was going on this guy was a uh turncoat we would say a, a deserter is in in god's mind he was deserting him 
to go over to the other side. So a lot going on here. You could go into it. Again, I have all this covered on uh, on numbers on online on the webpage if that interests you because there's so much going on there. Okay. Grace for the Humble is the title. Charles Spurgeon, James 4, 6. He giveth grace unto the humble. Humble hearts seek grace, and therefore they get it. Humble hearts yield to the sweet influence of grace, and so it is bestowed on them more and more largely. Humble hearts lie in the valleys where the streams of grace are flowing, and hence they drink of them. Humble hearts are grateful for grace and give the Lord the glory for it. And hence, it is consistent with his honor to give it to them. Come, dear reader, take a lowly place. Be little in thine own esteem, that the Lord may make much of thee. Perhaps the sigh breaks out, I fear I am not humble. It may be that this is the language of true humility. Some are proud of being humble. And this is one of the very worst sorts of pride. We are needy, helpless, undeserving, hell-deserving creatures. And if we are not humble, we ought to be. Let us humble ourselves because of our sins against humility. And then the Lord will give us to taste of his favor. It is grace which makes us humble. The grace which finds in this humility an opportunity uh, for pouring in more grace. Let us go down that we may rise. Let us be poor in spirit that God may make us rich. Let us be humble that we may not need to be humbled, but may be exalted by the grace of God. I don't think I can add anything to that. That is just as plain and as beautiful and as simple as it gets. We need to be humble in the sight of God, but a real humility. How do you do that? It seems you just be yourself and you recognize you recognize who you are. You recognize you remember your sin. Not to go back and dwell on it, but just to remember where you came from and your undeservedness of what you now have. And if you've been a Christian a long time, sometimes you can forget that and people can get around you and you know, that aren't walking very well with the Lord. And you can make that error of thinking, how could they possibly do that? Forgetting where you had come from. So let's remember that and pray and thank God for his grace. So Father, we do thank you. And we thank you for the immense grace that you've poured into our lives and the way that you have forgiven each one of us of innumerable sins against you, the chief being our pride. We've been, many of us, brought up in good homes, well-educated, finding good jobs. And we can get to the point where we think, I'm a good person. I haven't really done anything wrong. There's, I don't feel like I'm a big sinner. When we have yet to investigate our own hearts like Paul, when Paul realized that he shouldn't covet Paul thought he was so righteous, thought he had done everything right, but then he realized he had issues in the heart. And he realized that he did covet. And we realized that we do lust. We realize that we do desire things that are ungodly. 
And then we have the issue of our own pride. Well, we actually think that we're not sinners. Well, we think I don't do anything wrong. Where we don't have any idea of the amount of things that go on that we're not paying attention to in our heart, lifting ourselves up above God, living, trying to live our own life. So, Father, thank you. Thank you for your grace and your mercy. And, uh, God, all we can say is help us not to be victims of ourselves, not to be victims of our own pride, which can so easily, easily, Father, uh, confuse us, um, can bring us into this idea that we are so much better than we think we are. But also, Father, we also want to acknowledge your great grace. We don't want to ever try and beat ourselves into thinking that we are, um, I guess, unhelpable, or uh, I guess the word I'm, I'm trying to look for, God, is unredeemable, because we have been redeemed. And for that reason, we have joy. You have redeemed us. Their sins are forgiven. So we want to remember them, Father, but we also do not want to languish and think that we are beyond somehow your the ability to live in joy and live in help, and live in health and live happy. Because too many in the Catholic community think that the only spiritual life is a, is a life that is one of sorrow and misery, always dwelling on one's sin. No, Father, you don't want us to do that. You want us to dwell on the on grace and victory and walk in it. So, Father, it's a it's a wonderful balance. It's a it's a balance that you teach us in maturity as we walk with you, and we look for that, and we thank you for it. In the middle of all this, Father, we want to lift up the things that are going on in the world. The difficulties that it, that are happening all around us, and the and the the impossibility sometimes to even find what is truth in so much of the media. We want to pray that this war in Ukraine comes to an end. I want to pray, God, that you save the people that are fleeing for their lives. That you use the Calvary chapels there in Poland and the ones in the western area of the Ukraine to minister to the people, to bring them food, shelter, and clothing. Thank you for the many, many sleepless nights that these people have been working. I can't even imagine, Father, what, they, what they're really experiencing. And forgive me for not having a more sensitive heart, but thank you for being there. Thank you for your Holy Spirit. Thank you for the people working just around the clock to help these people. We pray, God, you would bring an end to this war, that you would stop Putin, who has basically lost his mind. And so we just ask that you would shut him down and you would bring everything to the negotiating table. But in the midst, Father, we pray for those that have been injured. That are lying in hospitals for your healing hand, for the doctors to be able to work on them, nurses without the danger, fearing for their lives, and you'd bring in the medical, medical supplies. Thank you for Israel that had been working hard to bring in medical supplies. We still pray that that is something that is that is happening, that is an, an availability to them. And we do pray for Tony and uh, Bernice. If she's if they're still going to be able to go over there or not to help, pray you help them prepare for all that they need to do to go there, to be ministering there in Poland, and uh, and God just open up doors, and we pray for Francisco who's in the hospital in Guadalajara today getting the diagnosis, 
and working with the doctors. God, just please guide them in uh, making decisions, and we pray for your ultimate healing, God, quickly on those tumors in his brain. So thank you, God, for this morning. We give it over to you and ask you, guide us the rest of this day and help us again as we learn to just continue enjoy, continue walking with you the rest of this day, knowing we're forgiven and then using that as a springboard to show people your love for them. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, brothers and sisters, we will see you the same time tomorrow. And we'll be um, tomorrow evening, 6.30 our time, in the book of 1 Samuel. I invite you to come and join us for that. So uh, we'll put the music back on. Enjoy the rest of the music for today. And we will see you tomorrow. Keep looking up. Bye-bye. Thank you.